It was my first pet ever. I wasn't allowed to have pets growing up because my mom was allergic to anything with fur or hair, or so she said. But I was at a, I was at a church event, a church carnival, and everybody who played the game at the church carnival won a prize. It was the birth of participation trophies, and it was the old get the ping pong ball into a cup game. And after about 73 times, I finally landed the ping pong ball into one of those, and I got to take home a bagged goldfish, right? This was back in those days where you could still give away live fish at carnivals before PETA canceled that too. And so we took this fish home, just swimming around in a bag, and then it's like, well, what are we going to do with this now? So we put it in a bowl and it lived a couple days, which I think really was double its life expectancy because it was a carnival fish. So we were doing pretty well for ourselves. But in the process of owning that very first pet named Goldie, I decided, hey, I kind of kind of like fish and they don't have hair and they don't have fur. So, so we could kind of do this. So we went to the pet store and we bought a little five gallon aquarium and we bought an air pump that was way too big for a five gallon aquarium, but it was cool. It made a lot of bubbles and that's fine. And we got everything set up and, and ran it for a couple days to make sure that everything was working fine. And it was, and then we we're going to go back to the pet store to get fish. And I was so excited and we went back to the pet store and they had had three fish in stock, and we left with one of them because the other two didn't look so hot. We left with one. We took it home, and a couple weeks in, the fish was still alive. Goldie number two was still swimming. It was awesome. It was great. And I went to feed uh, Goldie the second one night and dropped a little food in, and Goldie didn't eat. And I'm like, okay, just not hungry now. And it was swimming around, and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, came, came back a little later, and the food was gone. So I'm like, oh, you know, we've, we've all been there. You're just not hungry at the time. Dinner's ready. That's fine. The next night I came back, and I, I fed my fish again. And I didn't eat again. At this point, I'm like, what's going on? Maybe it's, maybe it's food cycles have changed. I don't know. Come back a couple hours later, the food's gone. The next night I go in, I put the fish food in the top of the tank, the fish still is not eating. At this point, I'm just like, fine, I have a teenager, whatever. And I watch, and the, the, the fish isn't, isn't eating. And I decide, I'm going to stay, and I'm going to watch. I've got some time to kill. I'm going to watch this fish eat. And I watched as the fish swam all around the food, but wouldn't eat any of the food. And then I watched as the food started to fall to the bottom. And there it was on the gravel. And then I watched as the food started to dissipate. And the fish was just still swimming in circles. And then I got out the net. And I captured the fish in the net, and I raised it above the water. And it wasn't flopping. It wasn't trying to jump. I had a dead fish for three days in an aquarium. I didn't know it was dead, but because of the strength of the air pump that we had pumping bubbles into the five-gallon aquarium, it was just spinning the carcass of that fish all the way around, and the fish was just bouncing off glass and like going in circles. I thought the fish was just swimming its heart out. That thing was dead, and I had no clue. Because it looked alive to me as a kid. It was moving, but it wasn't breathing. That fish was dead. Today, as we continue our look at the book of James, which we started a couple weeks ago, we're going to talk about faith that may seem to be alive, but it's actually dead. 
So if you have your phones or your tablets or your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along with us. We're going to start this morning in James 2, starting in verse 14. If you have your phones or your tablets, there's a great resource available called the Bible app that we highly encourage you to utilize. Once you download it on the device of your choosing, you can go to the events feature within the Bible app, and there either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201 and Lakeside Community Church will pop up and there you can follow along with us, take notes. If you're streaming from home, thanks so much for joining us. The verses are available down below. And if you're here and you don't have a phone or a tablet and you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be available on the side screens as we talk about faith that is ultimately dead today as we start in James 2, beginning in verse 14, where we read these words, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? This morning we're going to see when faith is a waste of time. We're going to see when faith is a waste of time. And that, might, that, that statement right there might challenge you a little bit. That statement right there might put you on edge. You might think to yourself, well, that's a statement from somebody who's skeptical about religion. Or that's a statement from somebody who's jaded about Christianity. That's a statement from somebody that doesn't really understand what following Jesus is all about. But you'd be wrong because ultimately that's a statement from Scripture itself. That's a statement from God that there is a faith that is a waste of time. There is a faith that is dead. There is a faith that is useless. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's not from a jaded perspective. It's from God. And that should really force us to ask some questions and to, and to do an inventory of our lives and our spiritual journeys and to see, is our faith all that we think it is? Because notice, the, notice what he says here. If someone says he has Faith. Someone says they have faith. This is a self. This is a self-deception. This is somebody who is convinced to themselves that they have faith, and yet what we're told is it's empty. It's empty. So let me draw the picture for you like this, because maybe you're still struggling with this concept and this idea. Let's say you're married, and you wake up in the morning and you look over at your spouse. And you say, I love you. And that's the first thing you say one morning. Now, I know that's a stretch for some of you. And don't point, don't point. But just go with me, all right? You're married. You look over. The first thing you say to your spouse is, I love you. That's how your day gets started. Now, you know your spouse wants to sleep in. So as soon as you say, I love you, you go over to the blinds and you open up the blinds, letting all the sunlight in. As if that's not enough, you walk over to the wall, you flip the lights on, You turn on some music, you get into the shower, you sing off-key as loud as you possibly can at the top of your lungs, you go about as as though their wants and their desires don't even matter. You go downstairs to the breakfast table. You make yourself an amazing spread for breakfast. You don't make breakfast for anybody else. You leave the dirty dishes on the skillet. You leave your dirty dishes at the breakfast table. You get up. You know that your spouse would like some help with the kids. You instead sit down and read some news on your phone. Then you head out to work. On your way home from work, you decide you're going to stop, and you're going to visit your mistress, 
and you're going to cheat on your spouse. And then you go home and you eat dinner. You do nothing with the kids. You do nothing with your spouse. You eat dinner. You get up from the table, leaving more dirty dishes on the table. You walk, in, you walk into your room. You hang out by yourself for the next few hours doing whatever it is you want to do. And that night as you crawl into bed, you look over at your spouse and you say, I love you and go to sleep. What good are your statements? They're worthless. They're empty. Your actions have conveyed the truth. How you've chosen to live your life that day reveals that while you may utter the phrase, I love you, it is empty and isn't meant. And we would understand that in that context. We would understand that in that relational dynamic. And James says the very same thing is true of people who claim that they have faith, of people who claim they follow Jesus, who claim that God has changed their lives. But when you look at their life, there is no evidence of that in which they claim. When you look at their life, they do nothing but say, I have faith. And what Scripture tells us, not what I'm telling you, what Scripture tells us is that faith is worthless, it's useless, it's dead, it's of no value. He goes on to conclude verse 14 by saying, can that faith save him? Can that faith, which somebody professes that they have and which they claim that they are full of, can that faith, which has no works, can that faith save that individual? And that's the question we have to wrestle with. He goes on, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? And so he draws an analogy for us, that there is somebody who doesn't have enough clothing, and there is somebody who is hungry, and they don't have enough food. And rather than people who, who say, hey, I'm a follower of God, Jesus has changed my life, rather than meeting that person who has a legitimate need, has a legitimate need for clothing, and a legitimate need for food, rather than meeting that person with a legitimate need and saying, here are some clothes, or I will take you shopping, or here's a gift card so that you can go get some clothes. And rather than meeting that person who is hungry and saying, here are some groceries, or I'm taking you to dinner, or here's the gift card for you to go to the grocery store, rather than do any of those things, we respond to the person with a legitimate need with some positive platitudes. And we say, well, I hope, hope your luck changes. Go in grace, go in peace. God loves you, and I do too. And we do nothing to address the need that they need tangible clothes and they need food because they're hungry. If we do nothing to meet the need, it doesn't matter. Our positive platitudes are absolutely worthless. There is no value in our well wishes. The faith that God desires is for us to be people of action. When we see those who need clothing, we clothe them. When we see the hungry, we feed them. When we see the oppressed, we fight for them. That is the faith that God is calling us to. Not a faith of positive platitudes. Not a faith of well wishes. James says that faith, that faith is useless. And it's not me saying that. 
This is Scripture saying that. This is God telling us that a faith that is nothing more than positive platitudes and a faith that is nothing more than well wishes when we see legitimate needs and we do nothing to address them is a useless faith. He goes on to hammer this point home in verse 17 when he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says it's, that, it's useless. Your faith without action is absolutely useless. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And James' point here is that you cannot divorce the two. You cannot divorce legitimate faith from works. Every time there is genuine faith, there, is, there are works that accompany that genuine faith. Every single time. There doesn't exist to be a distinction between legitimate faith and not living out that faith. There isn't a legitimate distinction between having faith and not acting according to it. True faith always, always, always compels us to act. True faith always compels us to act. And then he raises the stakes even a little bit higher. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He raises the stakes even more here. As we introduced a couple weeks ago, the hardest part of the spiritual journey is having, is having our spiritual understanding move its way from our heads into our hearts. But that's what faith is all about. It's not an intellectual exercise. Following Jesus is not an intellectual exercise. It's not about knowing the most. It's not about any of those things. Now, faith is, is found in facts, and it's, it's birthed there, but it goes beyond that. But it's not solely an intellectual exercise. And he raises the stakes here. Because James says, oh, you believe that God is real. You believe Jesus existed. God's in heaven saying, God's not impressed. Even the demons believe that. It's not enough to have an intellectual understanding that God is real and God exists. Even the demons have that intellectual understanding. That is not enough. Which, as an aside, makes me wonder what God thinks about people who question his existence. If the people who know that he's, he exists are on par with the demons, what about those who, who question that? But I'll let you decipher that all by yourself. God says it's not enough to have that intellectual understanding. It's not enough just to know that God is real. It's not enough to know that Jesus was a historical person who lived. It's not enough just to have that understanding. That does not save us. That is not enough. For even the demons possess that knowledge. Now naturally a statement this strong would get some pushback. Naturally, a statement this strong, we get some pushback. And James is anticipating that. So he says, I'll prove it. I'll prove it to you. Now, this week, I was privileged to have my mother-in-law back with us. And uh, it's been great. If you're streaming, just kidding. Love you. Glad you made it safe yesterday. Can't wait for the next time. 
And a uh, couple, couple visits ago at this point, they're all running together. I don't know, it was probably like two weeks ago at this point, who knows. Uh, but a couple, couple visits ago, she asked me, would you like some apple crisp? Now, normally, if a mother-in-law asked a son-in-law who loves apple crisp, if he'd like some apple crisp, he would hug his mother-in-law and say, thank you so much. That'd be delicious. I really appreciate it. I, you know, really, thank you for your kind gesture. That's just not how God's wired me. And so she asked me, would you like some apple crisp? To which I responded, do you know how to make apple crisp? (laughs) And she looked at me through gritted teeth and said, I'm going to make you the best apple crisp you've ever eaten. Which really played into my hand right now, because I don't want just average apple crisp. You want to motivate them. You want to make sure that it's going to, I mean, if you're going to go through ingesting the calories, you want to make sure it's worth it. And I'm going to tell you, and if you're streaming, please mute this part. It was the best apple crisp I've ever eaten. It was phenomenal. I couldn't let her know that. I mean, you let her know that, the head's going to swell. I'm like, hey, that was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good apple crisp. Thanks so, much for, thanks so much for making that. It was amazing. When she said, when I asked her, do you know how to make apple crisp? She said, I'm going to make you the best apple crisp ever. That's a tall claim. And she backed it up. She proved it. And that's what James is doing here. He's making a really strong claim when he says, hey, it's not enough for you to have an intellectual understanding that God is real. It's not enough for you to have an intellectual understanding that Jesus exists. It's not enough for you to have an intellectual understanding that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's got to go beyond that. It's got to go its way from your head and an intellectual understanding that all this is real and true into your heart. And it's got to change who you are. It's got to change who you are at your core. It's got to change everything about you and your outlook in life. It must change you. It's not enough just to possess a cognitive understanding. It must work its way into your heart. And James says, now, I'm going to prove it. And so we get to verse 21, where he starts to give us a history lesson. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He goes back a couple thousand years to one of the forefathers of faith, Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah were incredibly successful people. They were wealthy, had great influence, and yet, maybe like some of you, Abraham and Sarah had a void in their life. Because Abraham and Sarah wanted to have children, and they were unable to conceive. And until you've been there and until you've walked that road, you don't know. You don't know the heartaches. You don't know the frustrations. You don't know what it feels like to watch the days and weeks and months and years pass by. Desperately wanting. Desperately crying out. Trying anything only to never be able to conceive. You don't know what it's like to go from specialist to specialist, to have the insurance company reject claim after claim, for it to be just a source of 
a source of stress on your finances, a source of stress on your relationship, the wondering what's wrong with my body, the thing you don't always say but always wonder, and then the thing you sometimes say when you're just at wit's end and you're exhausted and you don't fully mean it but you kind of mean it, and you wonder what's wrong with my spouse's body, you wonder all of these things, why won't it work for us? And then you get the news, you get the news of your friend who's pregnant, and you're happy for him. You really are. You're happy for him. But there's a part of you that just dies inside. And you see their joy and you desperately wish it was yours. And May comes and it's hard. Because Mother's Day is just a, just a brutal reminder of something that you've longed for. That it seems like will never be yours to experience. Until you've been there, you don't know. But Abraham and Sarah knew all too well. They knew all too well of all the frustrations. They knew all too well of what it was like to get your hopes up, only for them to be dashed. And then they got desperate, as people do, when things aren't going your way. And Sarah told Abraham, why don't you go and sleep with somebody else to make sure that you can have a child? And Abraham goes, are you sure? And she says, yeah. And he goes, okay. And then he goes and he sleeps with somebody else and she gets pregnant. And then Sarah gets mad and she says, this is all your fault. And he's kind of scratching his head saying, I kind of see how it's my fault, but you kind of told me to. And, and then there's just a whole mess between Abraham's family and, and now his son's family. And Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86 years old. And for 13 years, there's a tension there. And then God shows up when Abraham's 99 and says, I promised you and Sarah that you're going to have a son. And Abraham's like, okay, God, I'm 99. But Sarah's 89. <laughs> and God says, nothing's impossible for me. And Sarah laughs. And when Abraham was 100, and Sarah's 90, she gives birth to Isaac, the son that God promised them. And then we fast forward a couple chapters in Genesis. And we get to Genesis chapter 22. In a scene that's confounding, quite frankly. Where God shows back up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the son whom you love, up the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. The son that had been prayed for years for. The son that Abraham and Sarah thought would never come. And now God shows back up on the scene and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. It's a scene that's confounding. It's difficult to understand. Why would God call him to do that? Why would you even ask that, God? And yet God did. And Genesis 22 records for us how Abraham and Isaac went on a journey. And they went up the mountain. And Abraham was faithful. 
and that he was getting ready to sacrifice his son who he had prayed and agonized years for. Only at the last minute for God to show up on the scene and stop him, of course. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would make for all of us. The agony of God the Father watching His Son pay the price for our sin. And it's also a beautiful picture of what true, genuine faith looks like. That there are disappointments and there are uncertainties. And then God shows up and He works in a way we never saw coming. But that's not where the story ends oftentimes, because God shows back up and he calls Abraham to do something that makes absolutely no sense. And it seems like it doesn't fit in the story. But James says, look at the faith of Abraham, that he was willing to follow through. And though it didn't make sense, was willing to do what God called him to do. He goes on, he says in verses 22 and 23, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And then we go on to another case because James is just playing the hits at this point. I mean, he's just gotten to that part where he's just playing the hits. In verse 24 and 25, he writes, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Joshua chapter 2 tells us this story. Joshua sent two spies to go and scout out the land of Jericho. They get to Jericho. They're scouting out the land. They hide in a prostitute's house named Rahab. The king of Jericho finds out that there are spies looking over his land, and he sends out a delegation to find the spies. I'm sure just to welcome them to Jericho with some hospitality, with a couple moving baskets ready to go, just to offer to the spies. I'm sure that's what they wanted. They were going around looking for the spies. They get to Rahab's house. They knock on her door and say, hey, have you seen the spies? She said, yeah, I saw them earlier, but they went out of town. And if you head that way, you might be able to catch up to them if you hurry up. They go after the spies. Only the spies hadn't left. The spies were hiding out on Rahab's roof. You know what's fascinating to me about this? Are these examples that James uses. That there's Abraham, an incredibly wealthy individual, has incredible influence. There's Rahab, a destitute woman, a prostitute. There's Abraham. A lineage of faith. A forefather in the faith. Somebody who followed God for years and years. There's Rahab. The first time she shows up on the scene for us is living as a prostitute. There's Abraham. 
who's well-connected. There's Rahab, who'd be an outcast of society. And yet God is big enough to accommodate the Abrahams of the world and the Rahabs of the world and use them all and call them all unto himself. That he calls the wealthy and he calls the destitute. That he calls the businessmen and women and he calls the prostitutes. That he calls those who are well connected and he calls those who have no circle of friends. God calls them all. And all are welcome in the kingdom of God. These are the examples that James uses for us. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In the same way, we can't cleanly divide our existence from our souls and our physical bodies. And the same way, we can't just fully do that. We know when the soul leaves the body that we are considered dead. So faith without works cannot be divided. Legitimate faith always produces works. Legitimate faith always produces works. In the case of Abraham, those works were prayed for and planned about. And in the case of Isaac, we see that years and years on this journey, we see that faith evidenced. In the case of Rahab, we see in a split second, a decision is made. And sometimes our faith is is shown out through a series of things that we do year after year after year. And sometimes it's shown out in the decisions that we make in a split second. But make no mistake about it. Genuine faith. Genuine faith is always accompanied by works. Genuine faith is always accompanied by the way we live our lives. So what we have to wrestle with today is this. What do our actions say about what we believe? What do our actions say about what we believe? Is our faith merely an intellectual thing that we possess? Is it an understanding that there is a God? Is it an understanding that Jesus lived? Is it an understanding that Jesus died and rose again? Is it just an intellectual understanding? God says, even the demons have that. What I want is for faith to move its way from your head into your heart. And you know when faith has moved its way from an intellectual exercise into your heart by how you live your life, that there will always be evidence that you have legitimate faith, that you would always have evidence. I know someone who is a sheriff of a town. It was his job to know the law, and he did. It was his job to enforce the law, and he did. When people broke the law, he would arrest them. When people were doing things they shouldn't be doing, he would intervene. 
It was his responsibility to enforce the law. And part of that responsibility is to know the law so that he could enforce it. And he knew the law that he was enforcing. The only problem? He wasn't living according to the law. He was enforcing the law on other people, but he himself wasn't living according to the statutes of the law. And so when complaints started to be ushered, state and federal agencies started to investigate. And ultimately, the sheriff was removed. And the sheriff was arrested. Not because the sheriff didn't know the law, but because the law only made its way into the sheriff's head and not into their conduct. Lakeside, it's not enough just to know that God is real. It's not enough just to know what Jesus has done for us. And please hear me, that's not me saying this. That's not me trying to raise some bar on you. That's God saying this. That's Scripture's mandates. That's God raising the bar and saying faith must be more than just some intellectual exercise. Faith has to be more than just us saying, I know this and I know that and I know this. That's got to make its way from our head into our heart. And when it does, it will impact our lives. And the question, especially for those of you who grew up in church, the question that you need to wrestle with right now is, is my faith merely an intellectual exercise? Is it just because I have a foundation that I grew up in, and it's a great foundation, and you should be glad that you grew up with that foundation, but is it just a series of intellectual things that you understand? Or have you really made the choice to follow God? Have you made the choice to receive the forgiveness for your sins? Have you asked God to change you? God's not interested in us just knowing a lot about Him. God wants us to follow Him. And when we do, faith moves its way from an intellectual exercise in our heads into our hearts, and it changes the way we live. And that's how we know it's real. Because true faith is always accompanied by works. You cannot divorce the two. God, I pray that we would be people who understand that it's not enough just to know about you. God, I pray for the person who's here, the person who's streaming right now, that has a great intellectual understanding of who you are and what you've done, but has never allowed that to truly grip their hearts, never allowed that to truly change them. God, I pray in the quietness of this moment right now 
this would be the moment that they decide, God, I want the real thing. I don't want to be self-deceived. I don't want to just proclaim that I have faith. I want legitimate faith. So God, I'm asking you right now to move it from my head into my heart. That God, I know who you are and I know what your son Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose again. Lord, I don't want it to just be intellectual. So I'm asking you to save me, God. And change me. Make this faith real. Make it matter. Pray, God, for those that follow you. We would just be reminded every day that true faith, true faith makes a difference. And Lord, we'd see every day as an opportunity to love our families well, to love our neighbors, to love our communities. Realize there is no legitimate faith that doesn't prove promote and provide action so we would be people who act and who love who are joyful who are full of peace who are kind and good and gentle and we would point people to you and show them the hope that we have this world's in desperate need of. Use us, Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.